Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's ironic that at a time when our air, water, and food are under siege, more people than ever seem to care about the protection of all three. Organic grocery sales have never been higher, and local agriculture is undergoing a kind of millennial renaissance. But for best practices, we have to turn our gaze to a small town in the Italian Alps, which became virtually the first place on earth to fully ban pesticides via referendum. That's the subject of a new book by my guest, Philip Ackerman Lice. He's a professor of sustainable agriculture and food systems at Green Mountain College in Vermont, where he established the college's organic farm and undergraduate and graduate programs in sustainable agriculture and food systems. He's also the author of a new book entitled A Precautionary Tale, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement. It is my pleasure to welcome Philip Ackerman Leist back to the program. Philip, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me here with you. I really appreciate it. It's a delight to have you here. How did you find out about this small town in Italy, first of all? (laughs) Right. Kind of a series of funny coincidences. Um, But I happened to live uh, not too far from this small town over the period of about four years, Um, not all consecutively, but at different points in time. And I was taking a group of graduate students uh, back there for a study tour looking at food traditions um, back in 2014. And at the breakfast table with a friend, she said, you know, they're having this referendum uh, down in Maltz, and they're, you know, which is the village, uh, the town where this occurred. And it's a referendum to ban all pesticides. And I couldn't believe it because it was actually a place where I'd been and worked for three years and um, had, had been spraying pe- pesticides in that region. So really a you know, pretty amazing coincidence uh, to happen right there in a place I was so familiar with with. What was the reason why there was this movement all of a sudden to ban pesticides in this town? Right. No, good question. And, um, you know, Maltz, uh, Malus as it's known in Italian, uh, Maltz is the German name, and it sits at the upper end of a high elevation valley in the Alps, uh, right at the point where Switzerland, Austria, and Italy connect. And, um, you know, really fascinating place. And it was one of the places where apples and uh, grapevines, other things, really hadn't appeared uh, as they had in much of the rest of the South Tyrol, the region where this, this actually occurred. And, you know, thanks to climate change, if we want to say thanks, <laughs> you know, apples were being grown at ever higher elevations. And as apple orchards started to move in, really threatened uh, not only organic agriculture that was happening in the area, but just, the, you know, the diversified agriculture that was happening there and had been going on for you know well over 5,000 years. We've got all that documented. So people really wanted to push back to save the progress they were making in reclaiming their food traditions and maintaining their agrobiodiversity. And one of the things that was going on was that the apple producers were, were kind of larger companies. They were encroaching on a lot of land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, I, I think, Jeff, is that, you know, here we had very, very successful cooperatives, apple cooperatives, fruit growers cooperatives, um, you know, that really started to dominate the industry. And even though the farmers themselves who make up those cooperatives, you know, generally average at two to four hectares, so that's about you know, five to ten acres, even though they're fairly small, you know, collectively, they've been very, very successful in galvanizing economic strength and pretty soon thereafter political political strength. And so, you know, as they gained that power, they, they were really a force to be reckoned with. But this one small town decided that, you know, they were the last bastion, really, of you know, this diversified agriculture in this area. And they were willing to stand up to it and protect, you know, the vestiges of what had been for a, a long, long time. 
And to what extent were they using pesticides? Pesticides. What kind were they using? And and talk a little bit about the way in which the pesticides spread beyond the area they were even being used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, fruit growers these days, uh, the the conventional fruit growers, as, as they're called or some of us call them, tend to use what's called IPM, Integrated Pest Management, which is a practice in in terms of how it was developed. You know, it was a practice that made a lot of sense in many ways. It was an effort to reduce the number of um, pesticides that were being applied. But at the same time, uh, they were really pushing for lots of different pesticides to be used because they were dealing with plants that were becoming immune to certain pesticides. And so there was really this... um, and volume in the and uh, an increase in volume in terms of the numbers of pesticides that were being utilized you know on the apple orchards and so that created a, an issue in and of itself for these folks and so they really wanted to to try to push against that because basically what was happening is you know creating these massive cocktails of pesticides that are being used and as it turns out this particular region in Europe is one of the highest user of users of pesticides it's about 42 kilograms uh, per hectare, uh, which is high even for Italy, which has some of the higher numbers there. And so people were very concerned not only about the, um, the amount of pesticides that were being used, but the number of different pesticides. And of course, you know, when you're spraying, one of the things that happens as a result of that is that you have pesticide drift. And there were buffers that were set up there, but they were only three meters, so only about 10 feet. And, you know, that just obviously, that, that wasn't going to cut it you know, for the mm-hmm. farmers who were adjacent to those who were putting in apples and cherries and grapes and other things. So the pesticide drift really is the, the, the piece of the story that got things rolling, you know, where there was one farmer in particular who suddenly found that his um, hay crop was completely tainted uh, by the pesticides from the neighboring farmer. And talk a little bit about how the community organized to push back against this. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing um, just, you know, how they came together because, you know, here, I mean, you've got very smart people in, in malts, but they're not folks who really saw themselves as activists by any means. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they... um. You know, they, they certainly weren't trained in activism, but as they saw this the growing threat, and they, you know, they could literally watch the orchards working their way up the valley toward their town, and as they saw that happening, there were a number of things that they started to do. Well, one of the first things that they did, you know, very savvily was to really to call the town together for some listening sessions, discussion sessions, if you will, where they brought people together to think about what they wanted the future of their landscape to look like. And unfortunately, there was quite a contrast because they could look down the valley and they could see the monocultures. It was very visible what was happening in terms of particularly of apples, but then also cherries and in some cases vineyards. And that's not what they wanted. And so as they thought more and more about that, uh, they they came together in different um, listening sessions, and they started to bring in toxicologists. They brought in lawyers. They, by the time it was all said and done, before they had this uh, precedent-setting referendum, they had over 24 different sessions, public sessions, in which they had these conversations and brought in you know some of the best experts from all around the world. 
And that, that made an enormous difference. But then they also were smart enough to take a poll at one point. They hired a polling company because they wanted to get a sense of where people were. And so they did this telephone poll, uh, checking in with people to see what they thought. And at that point, it looked like between 75 to 80% of the people in the area were really hopeful that they could maintain a pesticide-free future. And that, that was a spark of hope for them in many ways that they carried forward, you know, in, in some pretty tough days. What was their vision for their community? As you say, they looked out over it, they saw what was happening to it and, and some of the monoculture. What did they envision for it? What did they want? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because they, they were looking back and forward at the same time, uh, which I think is fascinating because the, this part of the region was known as the breadbasket of the Tyrol. And it was a place where grain growing had been famous, you know, for hundreds of years. In fact, the papacy and also um, in Great Britain, the royal family had very often coveted the grains that were grown in this area. So they were just beginning to get to the point where they were looking back and they were thinking about what they had as a heritage and some agriculture had changed. They'd given up some of the grain growing and they were just beginning to reclaim that. And at the same time, they were also beginning to see that organic markets made a lot of sense, uh, that farmers earned more typically by having um, different organic products. So you know, they were thinking about that. They also had the very first organic hotel in this entire region and one of the first in Italy. So they, they were just on the cusp of doing this, but then they also were working on sustainable transportation infrastructure, working on green energy you know, by which they could produce um, um, virtually all of their power by um, virtue of water power that they had and had a- access to. So you know, they were starting to see the sustainable future, but then the threat was working its way up the valley and, and doing so pretty quickly. And talk a little bit about how the referendum got organized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting in Italy and Europe, uh, there, the mayor of a town has an advantage there that if the mayor sees that there's something that is, um, can potentially threat, uh, threaten his or her community, then the mayor can actually impose regulations that may even supersede, you know, those national or even EU laws. And so in this case, the people saw an opportunity here uh, for it to gather together and to and eventually, by way of the newspapers and the other media, to ask the mayor to step in and to protect the health of the community. And so by virtue of doing that, uh, they put in uh, really kind of, I guess, put into motion a political process. But uh, they, they also, they were aware of the, of the fact that they could potentially polarize their community, and they didn't want to do that. So um, very savvily, and this was by way of a beekeeper and what in the States we would call a homesteader, Pia Oswald, uh, Pia said, you know, as we go forward, let's not talk about a ban. Let's talk about uh, you know, what we can uh, do that's positive. So let's talk about a pesticide-free future, something that doesn't disenfranchise certain members of our community. And so we're not going to use the words no, not, never. We're going to use all positive words whenever we can. And that, that made an enormous difference. Did other communities in the region look at this as something that could be a model, or did they look at it as sort of an oddity? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think other communities, uh, there were some who felt like all of a sudden they'd been entirely surrounded uh, by these monocultures. 
And so in some places there was a sense of hopelessness, I think, you know, within certain communities that this was something they could never achieve. But at the same time, they, they looked at the people of Maltz, uh, who have always been known as, as people who are, in, in German, uh, we talk about querdankers, um, so people who would think out of the box. They had a reputation for that. But all of a sudden, you know, they started to see that there was, in fact, uh, hope for them and then also for these other communities that were sort of on the periphery of, of, of the fruit growing industry as it was moving its way up. So, you know, it turned out that it's not only been vital there in the South Tyrol and more and more uh, um, people are looking at it and excited by it, but it actually has inspired a movement all the way across Europe for a European Union initiative uh, for pesticide-free villages across the um, Europe, which is really exciting. And who was opposed to this referendum? Right. So there was certainly were government officials uh, who were not excited about it at all. And, you know, they were, um, you know, influenced uh, to a large degree uh, by the Suturola um, Bauernbund. Uh, this is the Farmers Association. Uh, you, you could say in some ways it's perhaps equivalent to the Farm Bureau or some other organization that we might have in the United States. But it's the collection of farmers, you know, who frankly, they felt threatened by it because all of a sudden, if they weren't allowed to use pesticides, then many of them felt that that was the death knell for the fruit industry. And the, the fruit industry, depending on the numbers you use, but, you know, it's, it's around 4 to 5 percent of the economy of the South Tyrol. But it also meant that tourism, which is more like 20 to 25 percent of the economy there, that suddenly the tourist might wake up and realize what was going on here, that there were these pesticides, and then decide that they didn't want to come and, you know, invest their euros by vacationing in this area or subject themselves you know, to you know, being in a guest house that's surrounded by apple orchards and where you open the window in the morning and suddenly you're, you know, you can literally smell the pesticides coming through or as you're sitting at the breakfast table. Was there a realization that organic was becoming more commercial, becoming more popular, that, that there was an upside to that? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And certainly, you know, farmers were turning more to it. And I'd say they, they, you know, that's increasingly the case. People are seeing that there are opportunities to capitalize off organic, that it does, in fact, work. It's not always simple when you're growing fruits uh, to, to do them organically, but it is possible. And there is a premium, you know, to be paid for organic. And so farmers were seeing that as a, a positive so, you know, part of it was trying to uh, capitalize off of organic, whether you're a dairy farmer, a wine grower, and um, orchardist, you know, but then also trying to capitalize on some of the things that are out there, you know, like the potential of growing grains that, that really have exciting economic potential in this region. So, you know, organic is something that people were jumping towards, you know, and, and even the bakers in the region, for example, are getting very excited about the um, organic, and then also folks who are doing different, uh, you know, fermentation enterprises are excited about that possibility. So it's, it's not just the farmers, but it's also the processors. And, and like I said, even the people in the hotel industry who see organic as something that uh, they can put out there and bring people into their hotels. And talk about how the referendum actually went. Yeah, so this was in uh, September, August to September of 2014, you know, and one of the things I, I really admire about what they did there, they decided to have a polling period of two weeks, you know, and at that point in time, the mayor and the town council, uh, they weren't allowed to talk about it. You know, they kept quiet. And so during that two-week polling period, uh, people could vote in three different ways. Uh, they could go by 
um, and vote in person. Uh, they could drop a ballot in the, um, there was a 24-hour safety box there at the town hall, or they could do an absentee ballot. So they wanted to make sure that everyone had time to reflect on this, that everyone had time to get to the polling stations and cast their vote. And so it was really astounding. Uh, once the votes were counted, it was um, 75% of the people voted for a pesticide-free future in malts, which, you know, it aligned very well with that polling, the telephone polling that I was talking about earlier. And, you know, so it was very clear that, you know, three-quarters of the majority of people were behind this. You know, they recognized that, they recognized that there were tensions, and it wasn't something that was altogether simple. But by the same token, it was one way of holding on to, you know, really to the, the heritage which they'd been bequeathed with, you know, there with this diversified agriculture in the region. And what impact has it had since? Yeah, so they, after they passed the referendum, and it was a binding referendum, which means in this case that the town council had to take it up and had to figure out what to do next. And what they did next was to create a series of ordinances um, to go pesticide-free. And, you know, that's not been altogether simple. Uh, they have relatively small parcel sizes, and so they're, uh, all the farmers... <clears throat> um, the way the the land is set up, most farmers have anywhere between uh, four acres and ten acres that um, you know in different parcels, and so they set up a um, buffer zone, a required buffer zone for spraying any pesticides at forty. Um, I'm sorry, at fifty meters, um, which was a virtual ban on pesticides because there's no way that you you, you can't have the drift, um, and and there was no way that anyone could actually set up a fifty meter buffer. But they also banned the two most toxic classes of pesticides that they utilize there. And then the other thing they did that was very wise is they also said, and this is binding, that they would support organic farmers and they would support people that wanted to transition to organic and that they would also, in the public schools and other public facilities, that they would begin uh, using all organic products. So, you know, it was really pretty astounding. But it's, it's not been an easy path since then either. You know, certainly there are those who have tried to, um, you know, undo this in any way they can uh, by way of the courts and otherwise. And so they did end up, um, and there was one court case that ruled that the referendum itself was illegal based on a technicality, which basically anyone who looks at it uh, sees that that was, you know, I, I think some of us uh, would potentially call that a sham. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a technicality that threw out the referendum. However, the ordinances themselves stood. And the Maltzers, as they explain it, you know, they say, listen, when we've had the polling period and uh, by telephone and then we've also done the voting, it's clear 75% of the people want this. So this is democracy at its best, and we're here to protect that. So it's really been fascinating to, to, to see it all play out. And do they see this as something that only affects them, or do they see this as something that they want to export, that they want to encourage other places to do? Absolutely. You know, I think first and foremost, they, you know, they, they've had to care for their own community, you know, and, and frankly, they did need a little bit of time, it seems, just to, um, you know, recollect after this intense vote and all of the political activity surrounding it. But since then... They've been featured in the press uh, all over the world, uh, in Japan, Australia, the United States, uh, throughout Europe, obviously, India. And so, you know, they, they really see what they did as a move uh, that not only is something that helped them, but also gives promise for other communities that want to adopt this uh, mantle of 
becoming an organic community. And so, you know, for me, it's really fascinating because this is the first town in the world that did this by way of a political process, by way of a referendum. There are uh, moves afoot in other places to go organic, and, you know, Maltz has aligned itself. The people of Maltz and the mayor have aligned themselves with these other movements. For example, I was just in India uh, about six weeks ago, and it was, we had a joining of hands of the people of the Himalayas and the people of the Alps, uh, represented by the mayor of Maltz there, you know, to, to really bring people together, to work together, to find the path forward to organic, you know, through a political process, if it makes sense. Or while we were there, um, we also met the president of Sikkim uh, in India, and that state has become 100% organic. Bhutan is also moving toward being 100% organic. Denmark is now moving in that direction. And, you know, and, and the, these communities in the Himalayas, many of them are just guarding the door, guarding the gate, if you will, you know, trying to make sure that pesticides don't come in. They're already pesticide-free, but how do they stay pesticide-free? You know, that's the question for those folks. And how does the national government in Italy view this? You know, they, they, it's interesting because, you know, they've been much more, I, I suppose, progressive in thinking about this, uh, certainly, I think, than we have been here in the United States. And uh, they see it as a health issue. They do recognize that pesticide use in Italy um, tends to be very high. Uh, but at the same time, they recognize the need to protect community health. And I think, honestly, too, you know, having the slow food movement going to be born out of Italy is something that helps. I mean, because people have uh, associated Italy not only with the history of food, but also the history of good quality food and mm -hmm. good clean food. So having the slow food movement really going to be born there is something that I think actually supports it um, at the national level as well. Philip Ackerman Leist, his book is A Precautionary Tale how one small town banned pesticides, preserved its food heritage, and inspired a movement. Philip, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it, and uh, wish you all all the best uh, out there in the warmer climes. <laughs> and you know, I hope you <laughs> can come join us in Vermont for a little snow and good organic food sometime. <laughs> all right. Appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks so much.